Will you pray with me? Abba Father, we love you. You are so good to us. You are faithful even when we go astray from you. You are so perfect and holy to an extent we can't even understand. You know us intimately and personally, and yet you are great beyond measure. You amaze us in all your ways, in all you do, in your beauty and the perfection of your works. What God is like our God? You are the one and only and are beyond what we can compare. Jesus, I know each of us has had moments and days where we have forgotten you as our first love. Jesus, we repent of this. Please forgive us and be merciful to us. Jesus, we need you so much and we don't even realize it. Without you, we do not have peace or joy. Without you, our lives are neither eternal nor abundant. They might look nice on the outside, but they are not nice on the inside. Spirit, it is easy to get caught up in the things of this world, but would you please help us to continually come back to you? Help us to seek you and to fix our eyes on you and to follow you more and more. Help us to fight against the things of this world, to count the cost, and to give up all things that hinder us from following you. Jesus, you are worthy of all of our lives. Please, for your glory, help us live lives that are honoring to you. Father, you are so good and so gracious. Thank you so much for taking us back, even after we've sinned again and again. What would we do without you? We will never fully grasp your love and your forgiveness in our human minds. We love you, Father, and are so grateful for you. Spirit, help us to hear your truth today through Han's words. May we repent of the ways we idolize things other than you. Purify our hearts that we may be a people honoring to you. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Why don't you have a seat? You can grab your Bibles and open to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8, starting in verse 11. Zechariah 8, starting in verse 11. And we're going to be continuing a mini-series of application based on the truth of Mark 13. And so as you get there, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard of the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never break me? Any of you? Yeah? Now, I want you to think for yourself. You don't have to raise your hand on this, but how many of you would agree with that idea that words never hurt nor break, especially words that are given that are never followed up on, promises that are broken? Now, this adage was first recorded in the Christian Recorder of March 1862. So without the full context, context of it, I cannot judge its merit. But isolated on its own, this phrase to me doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and I'm not sure I agree with it. <clears throat> As we just read in the book of James, for example, words are powerful, are they not? Communication is powerful. It's been said that our depth of communication as humans is what sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. It's one of the things that actually is part of how we show and illustrate the image of our God. He's the God that spoke with his words, the worlds into existence. He's the one that came as the word made manifest. He's the one who gave his people the Ten Commandments, or in the Greek, the Decalogue, the Ten Words, as covenant between them. And so when we discuss this idea of how to be the kingdom of God's citizens amidst chaos, we need to start with the idea of our words before we ever get to our actions. 
For it's our words and language that often lead to our actions. And it's the words of others often, the voices that we listen to as we talked about last week. If we don't audit them, if we don't parse them, those words that we listen to often lead to our actions and our belief systems. We can see in our society how words are fueling the fire of hatred in so many sectors of our society. Would you agree? So this is where we're going to labor this morning, is answering the question of how citizens of God's kingdom differentiate themselves from the world in chaos. And I want to submit to you this morning that it's often through communication that leads to truth, love, and peace. This is how we differentiate ourselves. We, the kingdom citizens of God's kingdom, have communication that leads to truth, love, and peace. And by peace, I don't mean just an absence of conflict, but I mean true, reconciled peace between us and God and between us and one another. Shalom, if you will. We've launched into this mini-series out of a desire to rightly apply all that we learned through our study of Mark 13. If you haven't done that with us, you can go back and re-listen to those. It'll make a whole lot more sense. But let me summarize for you, as I've been doing, what the truth is that we brought out of Mark 13 that we're now trying to apply. It's that Jesus, in his crucifixion, his resurrection, and ascension, was enthroned as the Son of God. And that his reign as Son of Man was inaugurated at that time in which he was given dominion over all nations and realms and principalities. And that was confirmed, as we tried to show you over a few different weeks through Mark 13, through the events in the first century, specifically the Roman invasion of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the leveling of the temple. In essence, we presented to you that as the old Jewish system was broken down and brought low, Christ, the true Messiah, was raised up as the true and only sacrifice, the last sacrifice that was needed, and as the Messiah. And as he was lifted up, he was enthroned over his kingdom in the heavenlies, but here on earth, specifically, he was enthroned in the hearts of those that are his. And so while the world doesn't make sense and doesn't look like it's under his, uh, under his uh, sovereignty, those of us that are his choose to obey and walk in his sovereignty. And now we have a great confident expectation, as we talked about last week, a hope. It's what the Bible means when it uses the word hope, that Jesus will one day return and place all things to right, bringing together once again heaven and earth, which have been separated by our sin, but will once again be brought together in peace. So until that day fully comes, we live with that understanding, operating in the growing of the nature of the Holy Spirit in our lives individually and corporately as a church body. So we submit our lives to God, to his word, and to his people, all with the desire to show that confident expectation that Christ will return and judge the world. We show this in how we live, thus drawing the non-believing world to Christ through the actions and lives of his body. In other words, we proclaim the good news that Christ reigns by our obedience to that reign. This, dear friends, is how we announce the news that Christ reigns over a forgiven and justified people, over a kingdom. But as we've learned over the last few weeks, one of the keys to living as his people is to recognize that while the world is in total and utter chaos, his people are not. Amen? We operate in the knowledge of truth and the safety of his peace. And so we can go, uh, we, we can let go of all that we cannot control and give it to Yahweh in trust, prayer, and lament, and instead focus on what we each can control. Can you control anyone or anything outside of you, dear friend? What can you control? Yourself. 
your words, your actions, your relationships, and really only in relationships, the peace that you're responsible for. And while the world is raging in rebellion, we operate in submitted obedience to his sovereign reign. And that is what it means to walk as a Christian. We do this because we know that eternity future has begun already. We simply patiently wait for our hope, our confident expectation of Christ's reign to be fully implemented. So what then does this mean to practically exist as citizens in God's kingdom? If that's the truth from Mark 13, what's it mean? Well, first, it means this. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior and your King, you must understand that we do not get into God's kingdom through obedience or on our own merit or works. There's no amount of obedience we can get into the kingdom with. Why? Because even if we are imperfect in one thing, which I don't know about you, but ask anyone who knows me, I've got billions by this point in my life where I've made mistakes. One of those things breaks us apart from the Lord. That's sin. And so his grace is what's needed to get us into his kingdom. You see, that sin that broke us apart was originated with our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, and that original sin passed down to us. We chose through rebellion and disobedience to hand the power and the control of the world that he'd given us over to God's adversary, in the Hebrew, Hasatan, or Satan. And then, from that, we have walked in this innate gear of sin the rest of our lives. But God, in his grace, came in the flesh as Jesus of Nazareth, the one to whom the Gospels point. He died for that rebellion in our place and proved himself victorious over your sin and mine. And he brought us into the kingdom of dark, uh, brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. By his death and raising from the grave, he redeemed us from sin and we were blood bought into the kingdom of God, out of the kingdom of rebellion. So it's our choice then. His grace has already done the work. It's your choice and mine if we want to accept that transition into the kingdom because then obedience does matter because if we sit in his kingdom, we begin to obey under his kingdom reign or we can choose to deny it and go our own way, further engaging in the kingdom of darkness. Now, this is the first thing you must decide because, guys, being in the kingdom is about obedience. Those of you that are parents or, or teachers, right? You don't expect your kids or your students to be perfect, do you? Does anyone in here expect that? But I can still expect my kids to be obedient. I can tell you right now, John Jaden and Kara Rasmussen are not perfect, but they're obedient. You know why? Because when they do make a mistake, what do they do? They repent. Dear friends, if you make a mistake, God's grace is this easy. What do you do when you make a mistake? You and repent is a turning towards God and his reign as opposed to the idol that you worshiped. You walk in obedience to him, not to your own desires, your own feelings, your own wants, but you simply repent. And so this is the first thing that we must decide. Do we want to engage in the kingdom into which he has freely brought us, or do we want to do our own thing? And, and this is the interesting part, guys. I, I just want to tell you, I love you enough to say this. If you want to do your own thing, by all means, go do it. By all means, go do it. If you stay to put one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world, what you do is you harm those who actually want to obey Jesus. Instead, go plow into a wall as fast as you can so you can figure out it's the wrong way for you to live. Do it as fast as you can, as quick as you can, so you can turn and repent and follow Jesus as king. Amen? Amen. 
You see, if we want to walk in his kingdom, he's purchased us by his grace, but now we walk in obedience as subjects of the king. In the ancient Near East, a king of war entered into a covenant with his conquered people, his conquered subjects. And you can go back and listen through our entire series in Deuteronomy and hear a lot about this. And what you'll hear is this. This is the first point I want you to write down today. At the core of covenant is communication. At the core of covenant is communication. Last week, we looked at the character of God in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Core to his character is his steadfast love and faithfulness. Can you say that with me? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Say it again. Steadfast love and faithfulness. That faithfulness is exhibited in his covenant commitment to his people. His steadfast love that calls his people uh, to, to truth. And when we walk outside of that truth, truth, his steadfast love and faithfulness calls us back to that covenant. Even, even though God would be fully justified in breaking his part of the covenant. I don't know about you, but with me, there are so many times in my life where I could look and go, Lord, you would be totally good to just back away from Hans Rasmussen. But by his steadfast love and faithfulness, he sticks with us, calling us back to the truth because he loves us so much. And that faithfulness is then exhibited in his covenant people. And this faithfulness is why the Bible has as its foundation and as its structure, it's laid out in terms of covenants. And this didn't go away when Jesus came. Jesus was the culmination of what is called the covenant of grace. He is the high point of it. Jesus initiated in his death and resurrection what is called the new covenant. In fact, if you had a super old Bible right now, you'd open it up and it would be broken into the old covenant and the new covenant. Old Testament and New Testament, the, the word testament actually comes from covenant. And one of the ways that we see God graciously loving Israel and stepping into covenant with them was through giving them his word, through communicating to them. To Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, he gave them his word. He communicated to them. This is why it's a blessing to have God communicate with us. This is what Paul says about the Romans in, in or about, sorry, about Israel in Romans 3, 1 through 2. He says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, the sign to be brought into the covenant community. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That word in the Greek, it means utterance, right? Oracles isn't a word we use all the time, right? There's a software company called Oracle, I think, right? But it's utterance. He gave us his words. Israel was blessed and we're blessed because God communicates to us and gives us his word and follows through on that word. Do you realize how blessed we are that the God who created the universe and spans it with his hand gives us his word, his love letter? That's how we should treasure this thing and read it. Guys, I am so sad right now because so many people are looking at everybody else for truth except the word of God. I know I sound like a broken record from last week, but guys, don't listen to QAnon. Don't listen to BLM. Don't listen to Fox News. Don't listen to CNN. Don't listen to your friends on social media. Read the word of God. Amen. That's where we get our truth. Amen. That's where we get our truth. And God has blessed us with that. And so this word that we have in front of us, one of the fancy theological descriptions that he's given us, uh, or that, uh, the, sorry, that theologians have, have put together for his word is what's called speech act revelation. You can write that down. 
This is a theological term that you're not going to use this a ton in your Christianity, but why do I do this? Why do I give you heavy theology sometimes? It's not to show that I'm smart. Any of you who know me know that I'm, uh, you know, I'm kind of a dense guy, but it's more for the purposes of you guys understanding the undergirdings of your faith. And one of the things about the word is that it's called speech act revelation. And why this is important to understand without getting too into the weeds here is that what this means is that all of scripture can be seen as God speaking to his people, then acting upon what he spoke about, and then giving interpretation about his action. In fact, you can break the entire Bible down into these pieces. The Old Testament is God's promises and his intention. The Gospels, or the Gospel of Jesus, is his action in the physical realm. And then the New Testament is his interpretation of what just occurred. God communicated his words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus Christ. He performed the redemptive act that consisted of his ministry, death on the cross, resurrection, ascension, and then pouring out of his spirit to those who are his own. And then in the New Testament, he sent inspiration to the authors of the New Covenant writings to help us understand what happened. This, dear friends, is why we treasure the Word of God. It is His speech that led forth the action that He has revealed to us. This speech act idea is required not only, or it's seen in God, but then it's also required of His people. That our speech act with one another images Him, shows His heart and His character, and displays for the world what it is to exist in the kingdom of God. The kingdom in which the word of God reigns. And this is why, dear friends, this is a good definition for us to remember. True friends are those that help us keep our word and hold us accountable to our word in faithfulness. That's true friends. And so at the core of God's covenant with man is communication, but then also at the core of our covenant with one another and with the Lord is also communication. This is why there's so much detail in the Bible, like in the Levitical law, right? The people would have no doubt of the principles behind which they were supposed to act within the reign of living in God's righteousness and justice with one another. Turn with me to Zechariah 8, if you haven't already. <clears throat> and there's a great example here of this in action. There, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not COVID, I promise. Uh, I can't have water up here, so <clears throat> just a little bit of a frog. Uh, there in Zechariah 8, we see God speaking to Zechariah to let the people know that while their forefathers were judged with exile and booted out of Israel, he's bringing them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and re-enter into covenant communion with God. And he wants to enter into this covenant to bring peace between God and Israel and between one another within Israel. So let's take a look there at Zechariah chapter 8, and read just through 11 through 15 for the background here, okay? So this is the context. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people, as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. And as you have been a byword, of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, 
fear not. So out of the restoration of covenant unity between God and Israel together, there should be an impact on the people that should then free them from fear of judgment because they're walking in covenant with him and instead motivate them to live lives of obedience towards one another in righteousness and justice. So look at how God then says, this is what the covenant should look like. Look at Zechariah 8.16. These are the things that you shall do. Now pause there for a second. Is this a recommendation? Is this a suggestion? Is this a, if you feel like it, do these things? No, this is a command of God. These are the things that you shall do. Notice what it starts with, the foundation of the covenant. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. In other words, there's going to be sin, but you're going to judge it. And because you're judging it, that will make for peace among God and the people. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. In other words, if you promise to do something, do it or be held to account by it. For all these things, the breaking of oaths, the devising of evil, not speaking truth to each other, not rendering good judgment, God says what? I hate. Oh, we don't say hate in church. Yes, we do. Why? God hates unconfessed, unrepentant sin in the midst of his kingdom. He hates it. And the Lord declares this. This becomes the nucleus and core of what the outward show of faithfulness to God should look like when the people that worship that God and submit to his reign in their lives and in their community, they live together in this faithfulness. In other words, you can write this down, citizens of God's kingdom speak the truth in love with one another. It's upon this background of Zechariah 8 that Paul writes to the new covenant community of God in what we term the New Testament. Over and over, you guys have seen this. We've shown it to you before many times. In Paul's letters, he starts with theology. This is who God is. This is your faith. This is what's going on. This is the gospel. And then that's followed by commands to act as the covenant people of God within the new covenant community. Guys, it's only in errant heretical theology that antinomian, uh, it's a fancy word that means you don't have to obey, grace has come about in the church. This idea that I can raise my hand, say I'm a Christian, and then not obey. And remember, obedience doesn't mean perfection. What does it mean when you sin? It means repentance. It means an ongoing walk with Christ in which when you make mistakes, you repent, change course, and follow the Lord to even a greater degree. We're never going to be perfect in this life, but we're continually moving forward in that. And so in living out these commands, the new covenant community, the church, us would be living within and fulfilling the divine sovereign covenant given by God, the king of the kingdom of God. It is this idea of godly covenant with one another that Paul is referencing when he writes. For example, would you turn with me to Ephesians 4 in the New Testament? Go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.25. In this section, I'm going to read to you from Ephesians 4.25 through 5.5, Paul will say twice, speak the truth to your brothers and sisters. Now, this isn't just like, don't lie. That's part of this, but it's him referencing Zechariah 8 in rabbinic fashion and saying, if we are indeed part of God's kingdom, we will act within covenant fashion with one another. And this keeps us holy and at peace with God in a world of rebellion and chaos. 
And in doing so, we're evangelizing the world about who God is. Okay, so take a look, Ephesians 4.25. Paul spent all this time building theology and talking about he's moved into the church now, and he says in 4.25, therefore, having put away falsehood, because that's our innate gear, by the way, is falsehood, living in lies. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Guys, you're going to find out from me over the next couple of weeks, this weird idea has crept into this church that you as people in the church don't affect other people. That's a weird idea that's crept into the church. I don't know when, but it's from the kingdom of darkness. When you walk in righteousness, that encourages other members of the body. When you walk in unrepentant sin, that discourages other people in the body and, in fact, often harms them. When you stay faithful to your covenant promises to your brothers and sisters, that encourages people in the body in their walk. When you stay unfaithful to your covenant commitment to your brothers and sisters in the body, that discourages them and destroys their faith. We are not islands unto ourselves. Amen? 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 We are not islands unto ourselves. That happens in families and in the family of God. So let's keep going. I lost my place. I got preachy there. Where do we go? Okay, there we go. Then he says, when sin comes in, be angry and do not sin. So we should be angry at the sin, but not add to it. Just call the person sinning back into the truth. So don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil because that's how the devil gets into churches is through one person thinking they're an island unto themselves and can do what they want. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, Paul, you're confusing us. You said a second ago, be angry, but here you're saying, let all anger be put away. What's he talking about there? Well, really quickly, in the first anger, he's saying, when there's sin and it's unrepentant, you need to deal with it by speaking the truth in order to bring shalom back into place. But if there's repentance, guess what you do? You forgive, you love, you walk in kindness and grace. Because God forgave us of our sins, we forgive the other person. But if there's unrepentant sin, are we to forgive? Oh, wow, that was a really big silence. At judgment day, if you are unrepentant, will God forgive you? So are we, as his image bearers, to forgive unrepentant sin? It actually harms the person who's in unrepentant sin to forgive them. That doesn't mean we shun them. It means constantly calling them back to salvation. Okay? Therefore, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Do you want to be in the kingdom of Christ and God? 
then let it all be put away from us. Let's walk in repentance together. This is so core to the kingdom of God because speaking truth and acting within that truth is what the Lord has done with his people and we are to emulate it. The unity of God's people comes as we pursue this truth together. And so at the core of the covenant community is the need to speak truth in love to one another. And this is how when we have differing viewpoints, I don't know, on things like hmm, masks, on things like hmm, racial reconciliation, on things like conflict within the church, we need to be able to speak the truth with each other in love and kindness, drawing one another from each of our viewpoints, which quite honestly, everyone in here, myself included, when we just start with what we know, we're most likely wrong. And we're drawn to the truth of Christ where everyone learns and grows and makes true peace amongst the body. Now, what's important to remember here is that the truth expressed in all that we're talking about is God's word. Not my truth, not your truth, not this political party's truth or that political party's truth. We're all to have common, the common goal and mission of living within God's truth. And when that doesn't happen, it should be our highest ideal to do whatever is necessary, even if it's painful, to come back to that truth. But we also need to, mean, need to understand that speaking the truth isn't just dealing with sin. Speaking the truth, first of all, needs to start with encouraging one another, with giving sanctifying truth. We've just heard some of that in Ephesians 4.29 there, building one another up. Now, guys, this is not building each other up in flattery or saying statements that are just empirically untrue, but saying things that are helpful for your brothers and sisters to recognize their gifting and act in them. If I say to one of my sisters in Christ in this church, you are the most loving person I have ever met and probably even the most loving person in the world. Is that true? No, that's flattery. And flattery is never for the other person. It's always for me to look good in the eyes of the other person. That's why it's demonic. Flattery is demonic. But if I say to one of my brothers or sisters, friend, you have such a gift of hospitality and you show it to me by always making me feel comfortable in your home, then I've helped them to excel in their gifting and I've built up the body of Christ with their role within it. So speaking the truth needs to give courage to our brothers and sisters for the mutual upbuilding of the church. We need to do this regularly. Research has shown that for every critical comment, which speaking the truth in love in the midst of conflict is critical, for every one of those, we need anywhere from five to eight positive comments in order to be able to receive that well in that relationship. Wow. So this is a big one. And so this week, I want you to start your application by making a list of people in this church that you're going to build up. Some people you know well, some people you barely know at all, but you could at least say some strength for them. And I want you to make it a manageable number so you can follow through on it. And then I want you to communicate to those people, whether it be in your own family, maybe it needs to be your spouse, maybe that's where you should start. But you need to communicate to them their strengths and what you love about them and what encourages you. Give these people at least one strength comment and how it gives you courage in Christ and helps you in your walk. When I've done this before with other people, I did this even with my own family uh, at a recent getaway, it's amazing how it strikes emotion in you that you're not used to feeling. It's almost a, an overjoy that happens because you feel so loved. We need to start there, dear church. And let me give you guys an example. It is Labor Day weekend, and look at where you're at. You guys love the Word of God. 
This church loves the word of God. It, man, I, 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 I'm getting goosebumps all over because I love being part of a body and teaching a church that is full of people like you that love the word of God. Oh man, it does my, my heart joy. Well done, church. Walk in that. That is one of your strengths. Stick to the love of God's word. Let's do that to, for one another this week. Amen? Amen? But what happens then when we want to be a healthy church in the midst of conflict? A healthy church is encouraging one another all the time towards sanctification and holiness in Christ. And so, guys, we're going to need to speak hard truths to each other sometimes. Sometimes it'll be you to me. Sometimes it'll be me to you from the pulpit. Most often it'll be all of us in one-on-one situations and in relationships. So how do we communicate those hard truths? Communicating encouraging uh, strengths is pretty easy, but hard truths is tough. Or really anything that might come across negatively. How do we communicate about these tough topics in our society right now? What's interesting is our creator made in us this wonderful trauma detection and avoidance system in our brains. And so if someone comes to us and we're perceiving that they're even slightly critical, what's going to happen? We become really open and accepting, right? That's what we do. I mean, you see that in our political system right now, right? Let's just talk and listen to each other. No, what do we do? Defensive, our wall comes up. And so we as believers, first and foremost, need to combat this defensiveness as a spiritual discipline. In fact, we need to practice the habit of open-mindedness while staying rooted in the truth of Scripture. You see, we often come to the Word of God in our relationships and conversations not to mention in hard topics, with preconceived notions and the desire to prove ourselves as God and judge, to prove ourselves right, and sometimes to prove others we worship as right, like our parents or our friends. As long as that desire to be right outweighs our desire to be one with God and his people in truth, we will find ourselves reacting in pride and drawing conflict and eventually seeing those that truly love us shy away from helping us grow because we have proven unwilling to listen. Guys, people will only speak truth in your life if you listen to it. If you don't listen to it, then they're lovingly going to walk away and eventually you'll become deaf to the word of God. There's a wonderful video that the Bible Project just put out uh, in their process series called Practicing the Habit of Open-Mindedness. And Tim Mackey, one of the co-creators, says this, great quote. He says, being a follower of Jesus and a student of the scriptures is actually about having the habit of open-mindedness, to hear the scriptures say things I've never even thought to think before and to learn new things from the world around me. Now, that is massive for us to understand the Bible because only then will we hear what the original author has to say instead of being stuck in an echo chamber of our own opinions and thoughts. But it's also massive in helping us approach conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about this with me for a second. If my brother or sister in Christ, if any of us in this church community, evidence our own productive and fruitful walk with Christ who loves us, then we're going to, people are going to want us to speak into their life and help them grow as well. If we're all pursuing the same holiness, we're all going to want truth coming into our lives. I remember a coach saying to me one time, he came up to me and he said, Hans, you got to correct this about your shot. And I just, oh man, my shot's just fine. I don't need your help. Right? My pride just shot through the roof. My ego about blew up the building. And he looks at me and he says, 
oh, okay, so you don't want to become a better basketball player. Well, of course I want to become a better basketball Well, then you need to accept hard truth. Guys, if we want to grow in holiness and sanctification, I don't know about you, but I didn't come out of the womb with knowledge of righteousness and justice. And I need every single one of you in this room to come and talk to me. Guys, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for guys who've done this longer than me, who come to me and are like, hey, Hans, uh, you know, I know you've been doing this pastor thing for a decade, but I've done it for three or four. Oh, hey, Hans, I know you've been a father for this many years, but I've been... I'm thankful for those of you that are younger than me that come to me and go, hey, you're getting kind of old. And so you're kind of starting to close your ears to some of the things that we younger people want to say. I'm so thankful for those conversations. We have to have our minds open to hear these things. We're going to want to grow if we're following Christ. And so if I am in blatant, unrepentant sin at some point, if other people love me, they're going to want to come talk to me and pull me away from the destruction to which I am headed. Guys, it's amazing how many people over the course of being a pastor, and any of you who've been in ministry, you've seen this, it's amazing how much people think I love them until I have to tell them the hard truth when they're in blatant sin. And then all of a sudden, oh man, Hans, you're just so evil and mean. Guys, I would be evil and mean if I went, oh, look, you're wandering off a cliff. Keep going. Bye. Go away, right? That would be evil and mean. But saying, hey, stop it. You're being an idiot is loving. Hans, you said idiot. Yes, I did, because when you're in blatant, unrepentant sin, as a Christian, it's idiotic. It is the definition of idiotic. A loving person will say that to you. Well, Hans, you should make it sound nicer. Um, pardon me, you're, can you just hold on a second? You're about to step off a precipice and fall a thousand feet. Oh, I didn't say that. Let me, let me couch it a little bit. Oh, they're already dead. Sometimes as a parent, you have to yell at your children, stop it before they run into traffic. And sometimes as a pastor, you have to yell at your congregation, stop it before they run into traffic. So often, but not always, we're going to come to these conflict situations and we have to figure out how do we say this hard truth and it's not going to be received well. And so this is the last big point we're going to spend some time on this morning. How do we speak that truth in love? Sometimes when you come to these conflict situations, it's going to be 90-10 in, in area of learning, right? Sometimes it's going to be 50-50. Sometimes you're going to need to learn, I'm going to need to learn. Other times, maybe you're in blatant sin and you just need to listen 100%. So how do we do this? How do we speak the truth in love? Well, remember two weeks ago when we talked about that control box, we've already talked about it a little bit this morning. Can we control anyone outside of ourselves or anything outside of ourselves? What can we control? Ourselves. So we can only control our attitudes, our words, and actions. You can go back and listen to that, that teaching. So when we speak the truth in love, we can't enforce it with anyone. And as I'll talk about in a second, preaching is a totally different office, okay? Do not gain your communication skills from when I'm operating in the office of preacher. This is a different type of communication. But when I come to you one-on-one, -on -one, when we come to each other one-on-one, -on -one, we need to understand how we communicate so we can present things that are tough to hear the best possible way and we can receive them the best possible way. In interpersonal one-on-one -on -one communication and even within some groups, communication can largely be boiled down into three types. Passive, aggressive, and assertive. Say those with me. Passive, aggressive, and assertive. And over time, I've found that we're often very confused about which these are, especially in our society. So let's do a quick quiz. 
If you go on and turn on Fox News and CNN and look at the Twitterverse, which of these generally is communication falling in right now? Hey, all right, you guys are geniuses at this. You got this, okay? So over time, we've become confused. And I talk to people a lot of times. I used to even think this. I used to think, well, I'm just assertive. No, I was 100% aggressive. Any of you who know me and love me, you know that I was born with an aggressive communication style. Shocking, isn't it? You're shocked, right? And that works well sometimes for preaching, but it doesn't work well in those one-on-one communications. And so people have gotten confused. You know, people have even said to me, especially over the last five years as I've grown in, in sanctification, they've said, well, Hans, you're a totally different person when I sit down in the office than when you're preaching. Preaching, you come off as like, oh man, go do it. But in the office, you're like calm and soft and gentle. Yeah, they're two totally different conversations. Two totally different conversations. And so we have to learn where our areas of opportunity are and where we're sinning so that we can come to where God wants us to be. So let's look at the first one, first passive, first passive communication. We communicate passively when we communicate to the other person with a lack of words or no words at all or a lack of participation. Examples of this are when we stonewall another person. I'm sure no one in this room has ever turned their back when they're in the car with the person they're driving with because they're upset. I'm sure no one in this room has ever left a room and slammed a door because they just don't want to participate in the conversation anymore. I'm sure no one in this room has said when asked, how are you, by someone who you're in conflict with, I'm fine. You guys know that, right? You guys have seen it. I'm fine, right? How's your walk? It's fine. Or here's another one. Maybe when you're uh, discussing something hard and one party says, hey, what do you want to do? And the other person says, whatever you want. These are all examples of passive communication, but bitterness is growing underneath. The goal with passive communication is to get out of conflict. Brothers and sisters, there are many of you in this church that you could have someone standing in blatant sin in front of you, and you think that Jesus is calling you to kindness. You could have someone committing murder in front of you, and you'd be like, gee, isn't this nice, right? It's going to be okay. It'll be fine, right? No, that's not good. That's passive communication. It's not speaking the truth in love. It's based on a view of love that is only emotional, not truthful. And it's a way of gaining covert control of the situation because you feel out of control. It has a delusion of thinking it's helping the relationship by avoiding the hard conversation or conflict. But in fact, it's heading toward division because bitterness is building. And the person who's in sin is not learning or repenting. And guys, remember the story of Pharaoh? How did it go for him? The longer he walked in unrepentant sin, did his heart get softer and softer? No. And so oftentimes when a person is walking in unrepentant sin and their heart becomes harder and harder, everybody who's not saying anything is standing around going, why isn't the Holy Spirit working? Gosh, why isn't the Holy Spirit working? Where does the Holy Spirit dwell within the church? In us. The Holy Spirit is prompting us saying, go love your brother or sister and say, stop it. And we're like, this will be okay. This will be fine. They'll figure it out. No, they won't. They won't figure it out. We have to say something. The person communicating passively usually believes they're actually the barrier to good relationships, so they pull themselves out of it and begin negating themselves. The key phrase for this is, I should. I should just let it go. I should just sacrifice my position. This is the victim uh, type of communication. So are you passive? Think about that. How about aggressive? 
We communicate aggressively when we use forceful, coerc forceful or coercive actions or words. We act pushy. Recognized or not, the goal is to get my way. And this is for folks in here who maybe people have called you charismatic. A lot of times you probably fall in this, right? I can, I can run a room. I can sell anything. You probably, like me, line up in this innately. The goal here is to get my way and to have power in the relationship. And while passive communication tries to gain control covertly, this uses overt control. It's sometimes truth without love, which is abusive and harmful. It also deludes itself into believing its goal is relationship by using the thought pattern, if this person would just do what I say or agree with me because I'm right, then this relationship would be good. Guys, this is what's going on in our political spectrum right now. If they would just hurry up and agree with my standpoint, we'd all be fine. And this is the, the supposed barrier to here and uh, to good relationship here is the other person. It's always their fault. But ultimately, it leads to division because while we've communicated aggressively at one time or another, all of us have, none of us loves to be on the consistent receiving end of it. Can I get an amen? amen. The key, key phrase here of this kind of communication is, you should. That's why sometimes people will confuse preaching with this is because I preach a lot of the commands of God, which is you should. It's really we should, but as preacher, I'll say you should, okay? They're different. But the third type, the type that I believe is the most godly and what you see in the midst of loving conversations that even Jesus has is what's called assertive communication. It's how we speak the truth in love. Assertive communication is purposeful in its use of words and actions because its goal is to both hear and grow in knowledge of the other person while valuing your own opinion. It therefore has as its core an inquiring and open-minded heart that seeks to compromise and understand. This is not compromise that will throw out God's law, but compromise with the desire to unite in God's law that ultimately both people submit to his good and glory. And I'll just say it, the mask thing. Guys, the mask is not the issue. Yeah, it's personal rights, Hans. No, that's not even the issue. The issue is love. Love. Love is the issue. Love is the issue. Your rights went away the second you became a follower of Jesus. It's love. This may mean that one party might have more needed movement at any given time because both the anti-mask and the pro-mask people probably need to learn something. But it's constant walking in repentance and growing in the knowledge of the other person because our goal isn't to be right, it's to walk in the truth of God and love the other person. The goal in this is growth and sustaining of mutually beneficial relationship where expectations are spoken and aligned. And so the only barrier to overcome is the barrier of these unspoken and misaligned expectations that are keeping the two parties from mutual understanding. For both parties to walk away feeling known by each other, it takes vulnerability, which can be encapsulated in the phrase, what I need right now. That phrase doesn't put responsibility on the other person, nor does it devalue the speaker. What it does is it invites the other person to participate in what's going on. What I need from you is this. Now let's pause. I know I'm going a little bit late here, but let's pause for a couple of caveats, and then we'll finish up. You and I might get confused because we think to ourselves at different times, I've fallen in maybe a couple of these, and that's true. But for most of us, if not all of us, we have a neutral gear in either aggressive or passive. We normally operate there. And then if that strategy doesn't work, what will happen is we'll switch to the other one, okay? That's where passive-aggressive and aggressive-passive communication comes from. If you're usually aggressive, 
but then the other person fights back, you're going to switch to stonewalling and silent treatment or wallowing in your own self-pity. If that's you, you're the aggressive, passive communicator. Oftentimes, this is men in marriage counseling situations. My wife is so terrible, I need to tell her what to do, ba 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 And then the wife finally says, no, you're mean. Well, fine. I just won't give you my love anymore, right? That's what usually happens in those relationships, okay? If you're usually passive, but then eventually grow in bitterness and anger so that it overflows in eruption of wrath, then you're the passive-aggressive communica communicator. Guys, this happens in the church all the time. How you doing? I'm fine. How you doing? I'm fine. How you doing? I hate this church. This church is terrible. You're a terrible pastor. I'm out of here, right? Both of these types of communication styles are cancerous to the unity of the church because rather than keeping short accounts and making sure we're in ongoing reconciliation, we tend to operate in passive-aggressive or aggressive-passive, all the while allowing bitterness to grow. Okay, so that's one caveat that will help clear up some confusion. Another one is that we need to recognize that in one-on-one -on -one communication, especially in times of conflict, these, are, these aggressive and passive are not helpful. But given the appropriate context, they can be necessary. For example... If you're in an abusive situation with a person or a group of people that are evidencing mental and emotional instability, you're not going to be able to have an assertive conversation, nor should you be aggressive and escalate. If you're downtown driving around in Portland and you get stuck in the middle of a riot, should you be aggressive? No. Not wise. Should you get out of your car and be like, let's have a calm, peaceful... Is that wise? No, be passive. Get out of there. Okay? Passive communication works great in those circumstances. If you're, uh, another example is when you're interacting with authority figures. As parents, Kelly and I tell our kids that they need to obey what we ask of them, obey right away, even if we seem aggressive. Sometimes that's necessary. If our kids are running into traffic, like I said, we yell at them to stop, and then they stop. And then we've let them know over time that they can come back as they've gotten older, come back to us and have a conversation about whether or not they felt hurt or whatever. We can do that after you get out of traffic, Okay. After you repent, then let's have the conversation, right? This is why when people come to me and they're like, I'm in sin, Hans, and I don't want to repent, and I'm like, stop it, and they tell me, well, you should couch that nicer. I'm like, what are you talking about? Repent, and then we'll talk about how I told you to repent. Amen? Amen. Repent first, and then we can have discussions about whether or not my call to righteousness was angry or not. Similarly, when we're dealing with authority figures like police or uh, like a person preaching, for example, from the pulpit. There's going to be times where a person with authority will come across with authoritative direction. If they go into abuse, guys, if I ever abuse you, then you need to bring that up in a congregational meeting, go to the elders, get me removed. If I'm abusive, I need to go away. But that's the reason that preaching is different from sitting in those one-on-one -on -one meetings. I come here to give you conviction. I sit up there to help you walk through it in a very slow process, Okay. Think of this uh, like Titus 2.15, for example. This is, this is from Paul writing to his protege Titus. He says, when you're preaching, declare the things, the truths that I've told you. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Guys, does rebuke ever come across kind and nice? Even if it's intended with soft words and it does actually present empirically to anyone who's watching as kind, the person receiving it will hate it. I know I do. We all do. So with these caveats in place and understanding this idea of, of um, how we communicate, we need to challenge ourselves this week to take a look at where we usually operate and repent. 
And so this week, I want you to take this list home. Take a picture of it from the screen. You'll be able to get the slide online. And I want you to take a solid look at yourself, all of us, myself included. And then I want you to go and ask at least two people. Ask two people about your communication style. And this is what I want you to ask them. Is my communication leading towards truth, love, and peace in the kingdom of God? And remember, peace is not the absence of conflict. It's not. It's reconciliation and restoration of right relationship. So many bad situations happen because we peace fake, not peace make. We are to be peacemakers that communicate towards truth, love, and shalom, peace. And then we need to go to the Lord once we've asked this question and gotten feedback. We need to go to the Lord in devotion and confess where we're at and ask him to work through his spirit and his body to begin to adjust our communication style so that we operate in a style that speaks the truth and love to our brothers and sisters. I want you to challenge and hold yourself accountable to using this framework and communicating assertively in love and truth and receiving uh, assertive communication. And let it always be based on a mutual desire to grow in sanctification, to give glory to God. And dear church, please work with one another to make sure this is how we all operate in mission fellowship. If we can implement this practically in our lives, if we can implement it in our marriages, our friendships, in our parenting, if we can do it in our church when conflict arises, guys, we will be more God-honoring, God-glorifying than we ever thought possible. Is that what you want? Do you want to glorify God with your lives? Do you want us to be a church that stands out like a city on a hill? We have to first understand that we need to reflect God in our communication. We have to have God's glory and the physical manifestation of his kingdom reign amongst us as our highest good over and above our own desires and needs and wants. Because if we default to what feels right and justified, we won't do this. Guys, have you ever, when you're in a bad argument that you later regret in the moment, been like, gee, I really regret this. I'm not justified at all in how I'm feeling and yelling at this other person. Have any of you ever had that experience? No, we all justify ourselves. We all justify ourselves. And in that moment, the pride and sin of the original garden flows through us because we have become judge and lawgiver. We need to recognize that we have to repent in the way we communicate. Eventually, if conflict comes, we'll operate, if we don't repent, with the world's mentality of division more so than we'll operate with the unity that displays God's character. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, we're called to be ministers of reconciliation because we proclaim the reconciliation we have with Christ through the cross. But we also illustrate that reign of reconciliation in our own lives and relationships, especially when it's hard. The first question I'd ask if I was a non-believer when someone comes to me and says, let me tell you about the ministry of reconciliation and the reconciliation Jesus has brought through the cross. First thing I'd ask if I were a smart non-believer is, hey, so what's the pattern in your life? Do you have wreckage of lost relationships behind you or are you a reconciler? Because if they weren't, I'd be like, you are full of it. <laughs> you may talk a big game, but it doesn't show up in your life. We need to act also upon what we believe. And so this is a great foundation of how we should communicate in truth and in love towards that reconciliation. And if we can do this proactively in our relationships, in our small groups, 
That is awesome. But unfortunately, we're humans, and we will probably find ourselves in conflict at one point or another. And so next week, we're going to take this foundation of communication, and we're going to move into what does healthy conflict look like in the people of God. And I'll give you some more practical tools for communication. And then we're also going to talk about how these same tools can be used with those who are not followers of Christ and those who may proclaim uh, to be with their mouths but don't back it up in their actions. So we're going to talk about that more as we go, but this is the foundation. We need to be a church that speaks the truth in love in the good times and the bad times. Let the church have ears to hear what God requires of his kingdom citizens. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.